Well, please turn with me in our Bibles uh, this morning uh, to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, and in the church Bibles, you'll find this on page 848. Mark chapter 12. This is speaking about Jesus. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. We have been looking at this topic of the authority of Jesus in Mark's gospel. Uh, You remember that a lot of this stems back to the fact that Jesus went to the temple And Jesus uh, disrupted the worship that was going on in the temple. Uh, He overturned the tables. He drove out the money changers. Uh, He prevented people from going any further into the temple to offer their sacrifice. Jesus disrupted things in the temple. And you remember how later, after Jesus did that act, which was really a denouncing of their worship, It was a a statement of God's judgment against their worship. After Jesus did that, we're told that the official religious body, uh, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, which together compose what was known as the Jewish Sanhedrin, a religious body that had authority over religious affairs in the nation of Israel, that some of those uh, members came to Jesus and they challenged him. By what authority did you do that? By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? Because they themselves asserted themselves as having all authority uh, as it pertained to the worship uh, of God. And you remember that Jesus responded by telling them to consider John 
where did John get his authority? Uh, was it from God or was it his own initiative? And they themselves would not answer the question. But that issue of authority is still hanging over this passage that we're looking at this morning. As we think about Jesus, uh, where does he get his authority? Uh, who uh, is this Jesus is still uh, very much at the focus of what Jesus is talking about. We're looking at one of Jesus's parables. And in Mark's gospel, there aren't many parables. But we know that characteristic of Jesus's ministry was teaching many parables. And so here is one of those parables that is included in Mark's gospel. What is a parable? A parable is simply a saying. It can be a proverb or it can be thought of as a riddle. Uh, it's a story. But it's a story that has, as it were, two layers of meaning to it. It is, it is telling something in a way that branches out to teach us something about the kingdom of God. Sometimes people talk about it as an earthly story about a heavenly matter. That Jesus would tell parables to help people make sense of God's reign. And that's what he's doing here. But he's helping them understand the nature of his authority as something that explains why he has come. And why he's doing the things that he's doing. And as we look at this parable this morning, we want to see that Jesus' authority derives from the fact that he was sent by God. And as we think about Jesus being sent, we see that his purpose in coming was to express God's compassion on sinners. So we're looking this morning at this parable, which is oftentimes known as the parable of the tenants, the parable of the wicked tenants, and how Jesus is trying to explain why he has come, why he was sent. And we want to see this morning that because God sent his son into this world, we are to honor him. We want to think about this parable in two thoughts. We want to think about how this parable is talking about Jesus being sent into this world. But we want to think about the occasion that Jesus describes for him being sent. What, what preceded the son being sent into this world? And then secondly, we want to think about the outcome of him being sent. What does Jesus say will happen as a result of him being sent? So this whole context, thinking about the authority of Jesus. And Jesus is teaching through this parable. His authority comes as he was sent by the Father. But as he was sent into this world, Jesus is trying to give a fuller understanding as to what his being sent into this world signifies. And we want to think about it in those two thoughts. The occasion, what causes him to come into this world. And then the outcome of what happens when he is sent into this world. Well, first then, we have the occasion. Jesus begins with this parable. He says, a man planted a vineyard and he put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. It may not be obvious to us immediately, uh, but this uh, mention of a vineyard is a direct cue from Jesus that what he's talking about here is Israel. Uh, uh, we may not immediately think of it, but that vineyard image is something that was routinely used in the Old Testament uh, to compare the people of Israel 
and what God expected from them. To, to bear figs or to bear fruit or to bear uh, grapes that were uh, pleasing in God's sight. Often in the Old Testament, the prophets use this language. We, we sang about it in Psalm 80 there, that God took a vine out of Egypt and planted it and nurtured it. But that most vivid description of it is found in Isaiah chapter 5, which we were also reading. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. In other words, Isaiah was trying to say that what God did for Israel is his, he showed his care over this people. He delivered them from Egypt, but then he nurtured them. He provided for them. He protected them. He gave them everything that you would expect necessary for their flourishing. And then it says that God looked to Israel to yield grapes, but instead it yielded sour grapes or rotten grapes, stinking grapes that were no good. And so in spite of all that the Lord had done for Israel, they did not produce what was expected from them. And this is how the prophets oftentimes spoke. So as we're looking at this parable this morning, Jesus is actually stepping back and trying to explain something of how God has dealt with his people over history. He's summarizing God's dealing in time and drawing attention uh, to God's care. The people of Israel were the recipients of God's particular or peculiar favor, unlike any other nation. Again, we sang there in Psalm 147, how it says that the Lord had revealed his ordinances, his doctrines to the sons of Jacob. He has not done so like this in any other nation. That God revealed his truth so that his people would know how to live in this world. And for that, they were a privileged people. They were a people under God's care. And that was something that should make them humbled as a result. And so here, while the people uh, enjoyed a unique position, it was one of privilege and ought to make them uh, thankful. Jesus then highlights something of the privilege uh, that they enjoyed. But more than that, Jesus uh, describes uh, the dealings of God with his people. It says there in the, the story that Jesus is telling that after he went into another country, when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. This was his right. Uh, the, the owner was entitled to some of the crops, some of the harvest from his vineyard. And so he sent his servant to get his portion of the harvest. The tenants, the farmers, were those who labored in the vineyard and they would be entitled to their share of the crops. So when the owner is sending his servant, he's simply coming to collect what was his. But we're told that the farmers, the tenants here, don't want to give him any. Instead, they beat that servant and send him away empty-handed. That was a very unreasonable response. After all, if they had a complaint about the terms, they could simply renegotiate how the, the, the harvest should be divvied up. But to beat the servant was nonsensical. It was a very unreasonable thing to have done. But more than that, as Jesus is telling the story, it's not just the unreasonableness of these farmers. 
It's their unrelenting stubbornness that Jesus is drawing attention to. Because the owner keeps sending his servants to them to try to collect what is his, to collect the fruit that is his. And we're told that when he sent another servant, that they struck him as well. And again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him and treated him shamefully. He sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. Jesus is drawing attention here to what God has done in the Old Testament. He sent his servants, the prophets. And the prophets came to call forth the fruit that was to be entitled to God, to call the people to turn to the Lord and to yield the fruit that was expected of them. And yet when the messengers of God, the servants of God came, oftentimes they were mocked. Oftentimes they were treated shamefully. Some of them were killed. This is what even the Old Testament teaches. You turn to Second Chronicles and it says, The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of God came upon his people. Nehemiah chapter 9 says, Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you, and they created great blasphemies. Maybe you young people, uh, maybe there are times when you find an old picture book, an old photo book, and you can open up that book and you see all kinds of pictures. And as you turn the pages and you see more and more pictures, you're really tracing history, aren't you? You can start to see what happened over the course of time. But as you turn the pages and you look at more and more pictures, you might start to notice certain themes, certain things that repeat. Maybe it's pictures at certain times of the year or pictures at certain places. And you start to see something of a, uh, a pattern emerging. Well, you can do the same thing when you come to the Bible. As you turn the pages of the Bible, you start to see certain things repeating themselves over and over again. And what is it that you see in the Old Testament more and more as you turn the pages? It's the patience of God. Because God shows his care to his people. And then the people rebel. And then God sends them a messenger. And the people rebel. And God calls them to turn back to him. And the people rebel. And as you turn the pages, you see over and over God's patience. This is important that we see this because it, it should shape the way that we think about God. There's an instinctive gut reaction or inclination that thinks of God simply as a bigger version of myself. To think of God as just a bigger version of me. And if I see in my own life impatience, then I naturally assume that God is going to be characterized by impatience. That if I see in myself uh, uh, a shortness with others, if I'm easily offended or hold grudges with someone does something to offend me, then I assume that God is going to be the exact same. And that he is impatient with his people. 
and simply wants to get rid of them. You may know the German reformer, Martin Luther. Uh, he was always known for being very uh, blunt with his thoughts. And Martin Luther gave expression to this. He once said, if I were God and the world treated me as it treated him, I would kick the wretched thing to pieces. That's what Luther thought. If someone offended me as we offend God, we would bring our wrath immediately, instinctively, directly. But as you turn the pages of the Old Testament, you see God's patience being established and confirmed. He sends servant after servant after servant, looking for the people to give him what is due unto him. And so as we think about God, we need to realize that he's not simply like us, but rather that he is a God who is marked by patience. And Jesus is revealing that even in this story. The Old Testament reveals God's patience with sinners, and he continues to extend his kindness to those who call out to him. That's, an, that's a comforting reality. Uh, it's not a license to sin, but rather what it is, it's a reminder to us that even when we have failed, there is still one to turn to. That we know that if we turn to the Lord, he will receive us. And so Jesus here, as he's telling this story, he's telling us something of the occasion of which this son is sent. The first thing that he was emphasizing was is that, that it was a privilege that God showed his care to his people. But the second thing that Jesus was emphasizing was the patience of this owner, the patience of God with his people who were marked by this stubbornness. But then Jesus highlights the outcome of him being sent and the authority that he comes as being one sent by the father. In verse six, it says he still had one other, a beloved son. Uh, and finally, he, said, uh, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. This owner sends servant after servant after servant, and they're not respecting him because they're servants. But the owner concludes they will respect my son. Why? Because the son is the only one with legal claim to that vineyard. The son is the only one apart from the owner who has any claim on that vineyard himself. And so the, he, he has authority. And they will respect him because of his position, because of his authority. And so he con he's convinced that if he sends him, then they will respect him. This was not simply another attempt. This was the final attempt. This is the last attempt at trying to reason with these tenants. But we're told that the tenants in response see an opportunity. They said, come. Uh, this is the heir, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. These farmers who won't acknowledge the ownership of the owner are now wanting to claim the, the vineyard for themselves. They're wanting to take ownership. And if they can simply kill off the son, who is the heir, then they can claim the inheritance themselves as having possession of it. And so they see an opportunity. Getting rid of the son gives them an opportunity of claiming ownership. This is the way of the natural heart. If we can simply get rid of authority over us, then we get to be gods ourselves. We get to play God 
if there is no God. That if we can simply get rid of God, we don't have to live accountable to anyone else. And so they took the beloved son and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Now Jesus is being very blunt here. Because throughout his ministry, Jesus identified himself as the son. He is described as the son of God. In Mark's gospel, you remember the baptism where it said directly, this is my beloved son. That same language is now being used of this character. The beloved son is sent. And Jesus here highlights that the beloved son will be killed by the tenants. The beloved son will be killed by the very ones who are managing the Lord's vineyard. The rulers who are caring for that vineyard. And Jesus here is drawing this to their own attention. Those very ones who questioned his authority. But the reason why the son is being sent is because this father is desiring to bring forth that fruit. He wants to see the fruit that ought to be there realized. And so it is with the Son of God. The Son of God was sent into this world in order to bring forth that fruit. But it was, a, it was an expression. It was the final expression of God's compassion. It is the great expression of God's care. It is the, it is the ultimate point in which God is showing his reasoning with wicked tenants. How he is trying to reason together with those who would rather remain in their sins. And so here uh, he comes into this world uh, to turn them back to God. In spite of their repeated resistance, God's compassion went beyond anything anyone would expect. Jesus being sent is the final expression of God's compassion. So the outcome of the sending of the Son, Jesus says very plainly, will mark with the death of the Son. The Son that is sent is the Son that will be killed by the tenants. But there's a second thing that Jesus tells in this parable. The outcome of sending the Son is not only the death of the Son, but it's also the destruction of the tenants. Jesus says, what will become what will the owner do when they destroy, when they kill the son? He asks that question very uh, bluntly uh, in verse 9. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy uh, the tenants and give the vineyard to others. You remember in Isaiah 5, the same question was being asked. What more could the Lord have done to show his kindness to Israel? The Lord had done everything. He had provided for them. He had uh, nurtured them. He had protected them. And yet they produced sour grapes. But now the climactic expression of God's compassion. Being rejected by these tenants. Who are now trying to claim ownership of God's possession. Who are trying to usurp God's authority. What will God do? Jesus says very plainly. God's wrath will come upon them. God's judgment awaits those who reject his love. And you'll notice here that Jesus is very clear too. He says, what will he do to the tenants? That his, his judgment here is directed not at the vineyard per se, but at those who are managing that vineyard. It, it is an attack on the religious system that has been trying to get rid of the son that has been trying to usurp the authority of God, 
that has rejected God's compassion. God's judgment will come against them. And there's an analogy there, isn't there? Because those who try to get rid of the sun, those teachers, those who would be in positions trying to take what belongs to God and to use it for their own ends, will be met with God's judgment themselves. That's part of the reason why James warns that not many should be teachers, because they will be judged with a greater strictness, that they will be held accountable for whether they are giving people uh, to the Lord or whether they are trying to claim them for themselves. And so Jesus here is telling this parable about what will happen when the sun comes. The sun will be killed by the very people that he comes to save. The tenants will reject God's compassion. It'll result not just in his death, but it'll result in God's judgment coming against a religious system, uh, ultimately which was fulfilled when the temple was destroyed as well. But that's not the only thing that Jesus says. He doesn't end it with simply the destruction of the tenants. He says that it will come at the, uh, the tenants being destroyed and the vineyard being given to others. And then Jesus says in verse 10, have you not read the scripture? As he's talking with these religious authorities, he's saying you should really know this because you devote your whole lives to the study of the scriptures. What the scriptures say. And Jesus says the outcome of the sending of the son is not just the death of the son, not just the destruction of the tenants, but it's the deliverance that God will work. He appeals to Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is a psalm of thanksgiving for God's salvation. It's a psalm that is very personal in nature because it is describing one who's going through a period of distress. But he calls on the Lord to save him. And in the second half of that psalm, it celebrates the Lord's salvation. Because the Lord has not given him over to death. And because the Lord has exalted him. And so he celebrates the Lord's salvation. But who is this talking about? The psalm is talking about one that is a king. Because it is, the language is one that is fit for a king. And it's in the songbook by the king, but also because of the nature of what is being described in that psalm only fits a king. All the nations surrounded me is the language of the Lord's representative. But as it's talking in this psalm about the Lord's salvation, it goes on to say that there the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. You young people, maybe you've seen when someone's doing some building project, you may see a carpenter that is cutting wood or they're, they're building something and they may have scraps and they, they cut off a piece and they throw it to the side. And you look at it and you say, you're not going to use this? And they say, no, no, that's not what we're needing. And you take that item and you say, I'm going to build something with this. This is actually going to be the centerpiece of something I'm going to make. That's the language of Psalm 118, that what the builders rejected, saying we don't want it. God took that and made it the most important piece in his work of salvation. The stone that the builders rejected becomes God's work of salvation. 
In Isaiah, it used the same language. The Lord has laid a stone, a foundation stone, a precious cornerstone in Zion, and that whoever believes in him will not be in haste. This is the Lord's work. God would bring about one in whom whoever trusted in him would be saved. And so here in this psalm, it says the stone that the builders have rejected has become my cornerstone. What the psalm is celebrating is a great reversal. That, that man sought to put to death. That it seemed in that psalm that the one was surrounded by the nations, that he was about to die. Only for the Lord not to give him over to death. Only for the Lord to save him and to exalt him. God reversed the acts of man. He overcame the efforts and intentions of man's hearts. That's what this psalm is celebrating. But notice it goes on and it says, this was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. That language of marvelous means an act of God. It is, it is God intervening. This was, this was God's work. And here in this psalm, it's ultimately speaking about the Lord Jesus. Because while Jesus wasn't saved from dying, he was delivered out of death. The Lord did not give his death over to tombs decay. The Lord raised him on the third day. He was resurrected by the power of God. That was the Lord's doing. But the psalm doesn't simply say, that was a marvelous thing that happened. It says it was marvelous in our eyes. Why do the people of God marvel that the God saved his king? It's because the reversal that God has brought about affects them. They share in the prosperity of the Lord's chosen. They, they actually... They share in his success. And so it's something marvelous in their eyes because they see that when he succeeds, they succeed. They won't be given over to death either. That their enemy will not be triumphant. And so they can celebrate the Lord's work as they see that they are connected to the Lord's King. Jesus here is teaching this parable to say what will happen on account of him being sent into this world. Why was he sent? Because of God's compassion. He came to a very stubborn and defiant people. But he is the culmination of God's patient endurance with sinners. God still extends his kindness. This is the last and greatest act of God's kindness. And so if we're looking and wondering to ourselves, how do I know God is loving? How do I know that God forgives sins? Jesus is saying, this is the greatest way. This is the only way that we can ultimately have confidence of God's compassion. But he also tells us of the outcome. He knew that it would entail his death. He describes that it'll bring great change because the Lord will bring others into his vineyard. He will upset the, the, the way things are. But ultimately, he says, it'll bring about a deliverance that causes God's people to marvel. They will say, this is marvelous in our eyes. The chief priests, the elders, 
the scribes. They recognized that Jesus was talking about them. They couldn't deny that their ancestors had killed the prophets. And here is Jesus saying, you're going to kill me. And they're irritated. And they walk away. Some people will be agitated by what Jesus is saying. Why he was sent into this world. To show the compassion of God towards sinners. To bring forth fruit and to turn them unto the living God. That they might live as they were called to live. But others will see that what Jesus has done is something marvelous. And through the resurrection we see this is the Lord's doing. It's something marvelous in our eyes. Something to rejoice in. So as you think to yourself, where are you at this morning? Jesus was sent into this world. And every one of us has to give an evaluation of it. Where did he get his authority from? Was he sent by the Father? And if he was, is it not the expression of God's compassion towards sinners? And something that we can marvel in, knowing that it is enough for us to be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that as we think about these parables, that they would be uh, something that show us ultimately the king. That we would understand why it is that Jesus came into this world, but also that we would see the work of God fulfilled in him. So we pray, Lord, that uh, we would uh, be thankful for your patience with us uh, in our sins. And we pray that by your spirit, we would be a part of the people who can uh, take up these words and to say it is marvelous in our eyes as well. Go before us in Jesus' name.